Welcome to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter, the number one podcast for the number one crowdfunding platform, Kickstarter. Now, here's your host, Richard Bliss. Welcome to the show. I'm the host, Richard Bliss, and you're listening to episode 222. Let's go straight to my guest. My guest today has been on the show. Not only has he been on the show before, but he consistently ranks as the single most popular guest behind Seth Godin, who is number one, but he is my number two most popular guest. He's been back on the show numerous times. He's been very generous with his time. I'm thrilled to have him back. And so Howard Taylor is my guest. Howard, welcome to the show. Uh, it's good to be back, Richard. And apparently now I need to go have words with Seth. Yeah. Um. <laughs> good, good luck with that one. All right. You, you and I, everybody who's listened to the show, uh, well, you haven't been on for a while. So, um, you've done a couple of Kickstarter campaigns. You did your schlock mercenary challenge coins, mm -hmm. which did fairly well. How well did that do? Uh, yeah, closed at, I think 155 K and then we did another, maybe it was 145. Uh, but then we did another, uh, 50 or 60, uh, out the back, um, on, um, uh, post post Kickstarter yeah, post, sales, post stuff, you know the fulfillment survey stuff, you know spend a little extra money, whatever. How many uh, how many know. backers was that? Um, gosh, I I want to say, I want to say thirty five hundred backers, and we did we did right around two hundred and ten thousand. Uh, all right. And when it was all said, when it was all said and done, uh, you know we we shipped we shipped all the merchandise, paid all the bills. Um, and had about 80k to spend on the business and the taxes in incurred by having 80k to spend. <laughs> we, we might have to have a whole another episode just about the taxes. But, yeah, but in order to have that episode, I need to sit down with a spreadsheet. But, um, but what, what I'd like to talk about this time is being funny without offending people. Right, because for those who don't know, you are in the business of humor. You have been in that business for many years. You have a comic strip, schlockmercenary.com, uh, that has been – what do you call that? It has, it's, a, it's a daily comic strip on daily your website. comic strip. It's been running online nonstop since June 12th of 2000, and it's been my day job since uh, right around Talk Like a Pirate Day of 2004. Um, which is about the time that I left Novell to do this full-time, and has actually been paying the bills for me doing it full-time um, since uh, April of 2006. So that, that quick reference, Howard and I, full disclosure, not that it's needed, uh, worked together at Novell, which is a technology company, was a technology company. I think it's still around, uh, barely. But uh, many years ago, um, and you had a pretty good job there at Novell um, for all – all things considered, right? A good lifestyle, comfortable. Um, you packed up, decided, I'm going to go do this creative thing, and I'm going to go be a full-time humorist, comedian, yeah. but not stand-up. You're going to write a daily, a joke a day. How many episodes of Schlock Mercenary or Strips have you done? Oh, we cleared 5,000 in February-ish of this year, so uh, 5,100, 5,200. Um, is that, that at this point? At this point, I try to just keep track of the round numbers. And that's and each each day, it's a new joke. Yep. So well, but, in theory, <laughs> <laughs> many 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 days have been uh, clever repackaging of old jokes. Um, you know, I I will sometimes use a joke that everybody has heard me tell as a setup. 
for a new punchline, um, which is one of I've got a large, large bag of tricks for uh, for writing humor. Um, but anyway, so I guess what I'm saying is it's not that hard to come up with something new every day once you have a decent toolbox and have practiced a lot. Sure. Just like everything in life isn't that hard yeah. if you've practiced and have the tools to do the job. Um, but let's talk about the topic that you just mentioned because a lot of people think they're funny and they're not. A lot of people are funny and don't know it. But when you actually purposely go to be funny – um, there unfortunately is a shortcut that a lot of people take, and that is believing that somehow offensive material is funny material. And um, we're here to talk about – you're going to teach us about steps that you can be – how to be funny without necessarily being offensive, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a little bit about my journey in studying humor. Uh, long, long ago, I read a Larry Niven book in which one of the characters says – uh, humor is an interrupted defense mechanism. And another character says, what sane creature would ever interrupt a defense mechanism? Um, and I remember laughing at the time, but the science, pseudoscience, I mean, this was a science fiction writer talking about his theory on humor. Uh, and, but, I mean, it's Larry Niven, so I was willing to take it at face value. Um, the... Uh, that idea that you can either get defensive about something or you can laugh stuck with me. Well, since then, I'd seen, you know, lots and lots of, lots and lots of folks have written on humor, uh, including folks who have said, you know, studying humor is a little bit like dissecting a frog. Uh, telling a joke is, uh, you know, is a living frog. Um, these are two completely different things. Uh, and that's actually something with which I disagree. Uh, surgeons, dissect things all the time in order to learn how they work. And then they perform surgery and they learn how to make things better. Um, that's not quite the same as, you know, creating an entire human being out of whole cloth, which is where the metaphor falls apart. But the point here is that uh, I've been looking at humor for a long time and I believe that once you know enough about it, you can do it better. And very recently, uh, April 1st of this year... Uh, that's a, um, Is that a coincidence that it was on April 1st? It's uh, it is a coincidence because their publisher decided that this would be clever, ah. um, and I can't remember their names now. Uh, McGraw, Peter McGraw. I, I'm not in front of my computer. The book is called The Humor Code, and I looked at the Humor Code, and you know it was it was promising science on humor, and I opened it up and I saw the interrupted defense mechanism explained with a Venn diagram in a way that made it far more useful. And the Venn diagram uh, was, you know, one circle says benign. And the other circle, which is overlapping, you know, with the typical little sliver in the middle, says violation. And the area in which those two overlap is the area in which we laugh. Uh, you said, you know, earlier, you know, a lot of people try to be funny and they, you know, often they'll take the shortcut to, to say something offensive. Uh, and all they succeed in doing is offending us. Um, that is because they were standing in the benign space, looking over at the violation space and, and the humor that is in between them and straight-up violation, and they overreached. The challenge for us as humorists, as people who want to write something funny, and for people who are listening to your podcast, I would argue that the reason you want to write something funny is so that you can say something lighthearted and clever in your Kickstarter or Patreon or Indiegogo or whatever 
pitch that opens wallets instead of closing browsers. Um, because humor, well, let's face it, you know, humor lowers our defenses. It's a tool by which I extract money from thousands of people. Um, was that a joke? Yeah. Okay, it's I'll laugh. True. I smiled. Okay. I no, sm- you don't need it. Which is, but see, that's the thing. What I said there, uh, what I said there was, you know, a little bit of a violation. Yeah, it's a violation of trust. I'm telling jokes not to make you laugh, but because I want your money. Um, and yet, the conversation that we had earlier about, you know, leaving Novell and, you know, how long it took for the, the job to start paying for itself primes the audience for this idea that, you know, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of money hungry in this humorist. And fundamentally, that's what that Venn diagram comes down to. Uh, you are in front of an audience, and maybe you don't know anything about the audience. Maybe you understand them perfectly. Um, there is a benign space in which you can say a thing that that might be funny in some spaces, but isn't for this audience. It isn't funny at all. Um, you know, Richard, your brother Rodney has done some stand-up stand-up comedy, he has. and here in Utah, people have large families, and Rodney has joked about his large family before. And sometimes, you know, even when he says, I don't even know what the number is, 11, 12, 13, 13, um, sometimes even when he says that number, the audience doesn't laugh. And that's because here in Utah, he's still kind of in the benign space. And when he reaches all the way to 13, they look at that number and instead of seeing it as a violation of large family, they see it as, wow, you are an incredible human being. This is a great thing you're doing. Um, Whereas, you know, in... Manhattan, they would definitely see that as a violation of all common sense, and, and they would laugh. Uh, and, and so Rodney, you know, I've, I've watched him struggle with some of his stand-up, as some of his jokes fall only in the benign space. They don't cross into violation, um, which is, you know, which is the other side of the error, uh, or the, the other side of the, the misstep. Uh, I've never seen Rodney step all the way in the violation space. Never. Um, it's not his style. Never, Right, but even I say that um, you know his his family he's he's adopted and adopted and adopted and he has a very very mixed race family and so he has told some jokes that have some racial charge to them, but when he is telling the jokes he is never telling them in such a way that we feel that Rodney is a racist. Right, one of one of them that comes to mind. I got to bring it up. One of them that comes to mind is is that when he. That he's had people come up to him when he says, yes, they're all adopted. Well, do they know they're adopted? And he looks at the person like, are you nuts? Because Rodney is Caucasian. His wife is Caucasian. But they have adopted one from China, one from Korea, uh, one from India, uh, four from uh, Haiti, three from Venezuela, and three of their own. And so you almost want to – and so that is part of his joke – is that for somebody to come and ask him, well, do, have you told them that they're adopted? Do they know what point? And you're like, <laughs> they're not, he says they're adopted. They're not blind. That's his. Yes, his, that is. And that's, that is funny. And here's the thing, uh, that joke. Yeah, it plays, it plays pretty well in Utah because it, it touches on racism just enough to feel like a violation. Um, and it, it, you know, makes fun of the person asking the question, and so we laugh. If Rodney really wanted to reach towards the violation space here in Utah and make people uncomfortable enough that 
they have to laugh or get angry. Um, and, you know, it would be a much more daring joke. Uh, you know, he put his hands on his hip and, you know, straighten his, uh, straighten his collar and adopt his I am sexy pose uh, and, and say, I actually prefer to tell them that, you know, dad is, you know, amazing in bed or whatever. Um, and, you know, tell a joke about how these kids are. How he has <laughs> I have to laugh thinking of my brother telling that joke. You have to. Yeah, you're, you're imagining Rodney telling the joke. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but for my audience, but, okay, we've, we've got the point. And, and you know what? And racism is such a sensitive topic that when it comes to humor and racism, that one, that, that edge is so fine. And the get it wrong and it's way wrong uh, consequences. Oh, it's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. And yet, you know, Rodney... Uh, uh, you know, Rodney, and doing stand-up is super hard because the audience research you get to do is is pretty limited. You know, for one thing, the lights are on you, and it's hard to see their faces. So, uh, what you advice? Hear do you, the noises they're making, right? But uh, that that stand-up for our our audience here, who's looking, excuse me, to create a a video or to be witty in their comments or maybe in their social media. Uh, they think they're funny or how, I mean, is, do you, so the science of humor, what are there tools? Okay, the first test, yeah? the first test is to find somebody who is actually part of your audience demographic and run the joke past them. Um, you know, Richard, I know sometimes you write for Forbes. Uh, your audience is very, very different from my audience. Uh, if, if you were writing an article for Forbes, and you wanted to ask me if a particular joke would play, I'm not the right guy to ask because I, 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 I'm not in that demographic. Yeah. And yet, if you've got friends who are, uh, you know, CFOs, COOs, CEOs, whoever, uh, and you run the material past them, they can look at it and they can say, oh, oh, actually, that crosses, that crosses a line right there because of, and they'll mention something that's, that's hot in their circles right now and is straight up violation. There's nothing benign about it. Please don't go there. Um, I, the privateer press guys, yeah. uh, I, I talked to them a little bit about writing, uh, writing some comics for them. And I said, uh, I know your audience well, because I'm a part of your audience. The problem is some of the things that your audience wants to laugh at are things that the owners of your company do not want them laughing at. <laughs> and, right. And so telling those jokes, and I gave I gave them some examples. Let's not uh, let's you know, not hey, let's not do any of I those. I won't examples. give you I won't give you guys <laughs> the example, but I, I gave them some examples of this joke they would laugh at, this joke they would laugh really hard at, but the owner of the company would tell you not to run it. Um, and uh, I mean, so it was a, it was a it was a fun discussion. Well, let's anyway, let, no, so no, for no, your no. readers or for your listeners. Um, Let's go. Let's go back because you, you, you've touched on something that I, that I can uh, that I can ask you about. And because I have reached out to you about the possibility, because yes, I do write. I write on Forbes on a fairly regular basis, uh, both under my byline and other and ghostwrite under other people's byline. And I have reached out to you because uh, my team is looking at adding a humor. We have a small science fiction piece that goes uh, out every Friday afternoon on Forbes. We write science fiction on Forbes. I don't. Member of the team does. And it does very, very well. A uh, hundred words into the future. So it's a hundred word article um, set in the near future. I have reached out to you about the possibility of doing a one, a one-off uh, comic strip. 
Like I, a single panel comic. Thank you. A, a there you go. Feature. Yeah. A okay. single panel. And so tell let's 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 delve into that. What's the thought? Because we only got a couple more minutes. Uh, the problem is that you and I. We can just talk. And yes. Talk. Yes. And the um, audience might have grown so bored. Something like that. It's the exact problem that I described to you where I'm not a member of the target demographic. Um, and so and so I'm going to stumble around a lot wondering where benign and where violation are as I'm looking for this overlap. Uh, and a lot of punchlines will potentially misfire. So what would be um, some potential punchlines um, in this? Sp- I'm going to put you on the spot. I want you to right now tell me how would you go about thinking about something for a one-panel piece of work that would go in a Forbes article that's being hosted by a tech company? Um, sorry, give me, give me just a moment. The, uh, the, coming up with the actual punchline is difficult, but framing the joke, uh, a joke that makes fun of the way rich people treat poor people from a standpoint of, you know, the poor person saying, wow, that's really offensive, and the rich person not seeing anything wrong with it. You know, those sorts of jokes play wonderfully as political cartoons. I bet Forbes doesn't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole. Because... Because most of their readers are... It stepped into a violation space that's really about the possibility of rich versus poor class war, and if you read articles, you know, if you read the news about where uh, where the uber wealthy right now are spending, you know, some of their time and some of their some of their worry energy, it is on, you know, what, we don't want people to hate us because we have money. Um, and so those th- that kind of joke, I would look at it and I'd say, nope. Um, I can I can tell it, but I won't. Uh, I mean, I could make it funny, but it would not be funny for this crowd of people. And so, what I would probably reach for uh, is, and this is another place where the benign and violation space uh, are so important. Uh, I might reach for something science fictional and tell a sci-fi style joke. I did a sci-fi joke in a uh, single panel in a Worldcom newsletter, uh, where a couple is in an elevator with a huge stack of buttons. Um, and the, the caption was, you know, Worldcon uh, 2108 uh, on the, um, you know, on the, the geosynchronous, uh, geosynchronous Earth satellite. Um, and these people are in a space elevator. And, you know, she's looking out the window of the elevator saying, wow, it's gorgeous. I can see the whole world from here. And he's saying, enjoy the view. The kid who got off just now pushed all the buttons. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Yes, and if, but see, here's the thing: if you've been on an elevator and uh, I in a pushed hotel up. where there's a convention and a kid has pushed all the buttons, you oh. know exactly what's going on. Or I was in a hotel. The concept of space elevator. Oh, but I was in the hotel in New York at a conference, and I wasn't a kid, and I pushed all the buttons, and we got off on our floor just as a couple going to the theater was dressed in all dressed in, and they got on the elevator. Oh, and my partner just ran down the hallway because they got on the elevator, turned around, looked at all the buttons as the door closed and looked at us. And I was like, oh, so that's why it's like, oh, I've been there. Oh, my gosh. All right. So there. So that's the that's the uh, that's okay. the operating principle. What I would honestly what I would counsel your readers to do. One, yeah. get that book because it is a wonderful read. The humor it's, code, the humor code, the humor code. Uh, published April 1st of 2014. Uh, I loved it. Um, they do a very, very good job of describing the science 
and uh, and telling a good story from beginning to end. Perfect, uh, Howard. We're out of time. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> now and we're t- literally we're over time now. But and 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 Howard, uh, just for the audiences has been a huge influence on the show because he does a podcast called Writing Excuses. It is a award-winning podcast, uh, very high, highly um, uh, regarded for the content. If you want to be a writer, I strongly recommend it. But Howard, it's a 15-minute uh, podcast. So when I did mine a few years ago, I thought, I don't want to copy Howard. I'm going to make mine 20. And even with 20, we still run out of time, don't we? Well, and our tagline our tagline on writing excuses is 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and we're not that smart. And uh, what I found is that that tagline, it, people love the podcast because of the tagline. It is one of the best pieces of, it's one of the best things I've ever written. It's a haiku. Um, and it, it's a haiku and it's branding and it's funny. And, uh, and don't feel bad about 20, being 20 minutes long because I think your people are, uh, maybe in less of a hurry, or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but you're definitely that smart. Appreciate that, Howard. Thank you very much. No problem. <laughs> You've been listening to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. My guest has been Howard Taylor, author of Schlock Mercenary at schlockmercenary.com, um, host, co-host on Writing Excuses podcast, and uh, overall good guy who's been talking about how to be humorous without being offensive. Hopefully you've heard something inspiring. I always do, and I have the joy and pleasure of counting Howard as my friend, and so he's inspired me my entire life. And don't forget to visit patreon.com slash richardbliss to go and pledge for the podcast to keep it going and show your support. Thanks for listening. Take care.